Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating applied ethics at the University of Leeds. I'm Matt, one of the uh, students who integrated last year in biomedical and healthcare ethics, and the title of my dissertation was In Search of a Good Death, How Should a Doctor Act in Order to Best Care for a Dying Patient? And I wanted to do my dissertation on this because of what I'd seen in practice and also from what I'd read about the current state of end of life care in the UK and across the Western world, because I would put it to you that a lot of people in the UK and the Western world are currently being failed by society and healthcare systems when it comes to their end of life care and eventual death. So in the UK, 50% of people die in hospital, despite the vast majority of them wanting to die at home or in hospices. And I would ask you why. Um, in the final 90 days of their life, most people have multiple short hospital admissions, often in intensive care units, and I would ask what for. Patients and family members often overestimate the amount of time they have left and act accordingly, and often this is to their own detriment. Again, I would ask why. And 10 to 15% of cancer patients receive a new course of chemotherapy, so a different type of chemotherapy, in the last two weeks of life. And again, that strikes me as a bit odd, and I'd ask why. So after doing uh, quite a bit of reading, I would argue that many of these poor outcomes stem from the inability of the doctor, the patient and the family to discuss the topic of -of end-of-life care. The difference if patients do have this conversation is really quite stark. They receive palliative care input sooner, are treated in a closer accordance with their wishes, they stop aggressive treatment sooner, are referred to hospices earlier, and consistently have a better quality of life. And in some cases, studies have found they actually live longer, which is counterintuitive. Um, It would appear that there are two different states of affair within medical practice at present. There are the majority of doctors who do not have... um, frank and early conversations about end-of-life care, and then there are the minority doctors, often in specialist uh, fields of palliative care who or uh, geriatric medicine, who do have these conversations. And I would argue that the first state of affairs is unethical and indefensible, even by the profession's own standards. Um, as shown in uh, this slide, it's unethical because the first state of affairs violates every pillar of medical ethics, an ethical code that many doctors have taught, know and use when making ethical decisions. So the patient's autonomy is violated because patients receive care that they wouldn't have opted for if they had a fuller picture of their circumstances. Patients receive care for the sake of appearances or to placate the family or console the doctor. And again, this violates the patient's autonomy. The principles of beneficence and non-maleficence are violated because patients are given harmful treatment uh, with no benefit or treatment that reduces their quality of life. And I'd also argue that justice is violated because it seems that there is an effective alternative and this different approach, which is done in palliative care, um, improves patients' quality of life and may even save money and resources. So, um, So why is this the case? So I argue that there are two barriers that prevent good end-of-life care. 
Firstly, the general societal fear of and the taboo that surrounds death. And secondly, the fact that medical professions, medical professionals overwhelmingly view death as a negative outcome or as a failure. And it's these two barriers which I'd like to try and address today. So firstly, uh, let's talk about the slightly morbid topic of death. So the state of death is nigh incomprehensible um, to us, but I think a Socrates quote does a pretty good job of giving us a flavour, and that is, death is a single night of dream. I would argue that death is a neutral state that can't harm us, and therefore it's overly feared. I think this because death is neither intrinsically nor extrinsically harmful. So I'll try and explain what I mean by this by using the analogy of a prisoner. A state could be intrinsically bad or harmful because of the way a state negatively impacts on a person's subjective experience. So the prisoner may have poor food or an uncomfortable bed. A state could be extrinsically harmful because of what the state prevents you from experiencing. Uh, these being other positive experiences. So in this, in the case of a prisoner, his freedom is removed and therefore he cannot do things that he would otherwise enjoy. So it's an extrinsically harmful state. So I would argue that death is not intrinsically bad as a person no longer exists to feel any negative sensorial stimuli. So that's that out of the way. I'd also argue that death is not extrinsically bad as the person no longer exists and will not exist again and is as such is incapable of holding any future plans or aspirations. So critics would argue that if death is in fact a neutral state, then murder and people dying of preventable diseases is not a bad thing either, as no harm has befallen the person who has died. And this seems unintuitive. The reason we think murder is bad, why people dying of diseases that could have been cured is bad, is because something very easily could have been done for that person to continue living. Um, and it seems that they have lost that life that could have plausibly been given to them. I disagree with this line of reasoning. So Herschel argues that killing is prima facie wrong because it prevents the victim from having more goods that they could have reasonably expected to receive had they not died. This line of reasoning could be used to explain why death from a curable illness is wrong. It could also be used to explain why murder is wrong, because the person who dies could have reasonably expected to be treated and hence receive the goods that result from living. And the person could also reasonably expected not to have been killed by somebody. I would argue that this position is not at odds with the idea that death is neither intrinsically nor extrinsically harmful or bad. This is because I view life as a positive state and death is a neutral state. Therefore, it's rational for an individual to choose a state of life over a state of death when there is a choice to be made. And this choice in the examples I've given is the choice not to be killed or the choice to have a life saving treatment. However, there comes a point in a person's life when there is no longer a choice to be made, as death is an inevitable fact of, the, of human life. And because of this, it's irrational to say that death always blocks the continued, the continued pursuit of goods, as such a pursuit cannot go on forever. As such, I would argue that the death of a person with an uncurable disease is not something which harms them. As death is an unchangeably neutral state, I think we should shift our focus from giving people a good death, something which is seen an awful lot in medical literature, to instead focus on helping people die well. I argue this is the best way. The best way to do this is by helping a patient maintain their dignity throughout the dying process. 
Due to time, I'll not fully explain what I mean by this, but simply put, this can be done by not imposing indignities upon the patient and minimising the indignities a patient suffers during the process by empowering patients to make their own choices that best marry with their internal view of themselves. So now, so now why do so many doctors view death as a negative outcome, which they seek to avoid at all costs? So I believe that this is an inevitable uh, consequence of either using the biomedical definition of health or the WHO definition of health. So I argued in my definition, in my dissertation, that these models of health are inadequate or problematic because these problems are exacerbated in end of life care. Uh, I believe this is an inevitable consequence of using either the biomedical definition of health or the WHO definition of health. I argue in my dissertation that these models of health are inadequate or problematic and the problems with these definitions are really exacerbated in end of life care. This is because society and doctors view themselves as healers and as such want to return their patients to a state of health, something which I argue in my dissertation is the only goal of doctors. However, at the end of a patient's life, there is no way of restoring a patient to a state of health as described by these two models. Sadly, rather than be seen to admit defeat, many doctors will continue to treat um, their patients ever more aggressively in a desperate attempt to heal their patient. And in doing so, will not provide the patient with the care that will most help them in that situation. I think this is further reinforced by societal attitudes towards death. For example, the common phrase, they lost their battle of cancer or Cancer Research UK's we will beat cancer um, a campaign. These phrases anthropomorphize the disease and give an impression that cancer can be overcome by some sheer force of will or a clever medical treatment, which in turn reinforces the view that the, that death, the death of a patient is a failure attributable to the lack of effort or the lack of ingenuity. What I believe we need is a more robust definition of health, which is more appropriate to the modern world, given the amount of patients with chronic diseases and the amount of dying patients that doctors are now expected to care for. I argue that a suitable definition can be found by combining CAS's functional model of health with the adaptive model of health. So CAS defines health as the well working of an organism as a whole. So CAS views humans as a collection of organised and structured parts, and each one of these parts, even at the smallest level, has a role in making the whole human function properly. CAS argues that there are levels of organisation from individual cells to groups of cells to organs and so on. Each group has its own function and the complexity of that function increases as you go up the levels. However, CAS argues that you can only assess how well a system is functioning from a higher level, as a large system should, a large system should be viewed as a lot of separate parts, but as a combined whole. As such, how healthy a human is should be defined as how well the human is acting as a whole and not by how well each of these individual systems is working. So health in this view is seen as a continuum upon which an individual sits, not a binary of healthy and unhealthy, as an organism can be seen to be functioning well to a variety of degrees. It is therefore the doctor's role to manipulate the body into functioning more correctly or coping more properly. Um, in order to transfer patients up this continuum to a better state of health. As such, I think CAS has created a definition of health which is scientific and empirical as it emphasises the loss of biological function, whilst also respecting the patient and their values by stressing the 
importance of the whole. Therefore, Cassie's model encourages a holistic and non-reductionist yet practical model of health which we can use in modern day healthcare. There is, however, an important but. Cassie's model faces trouble as human bodies can function slightly differently to one another, but these differences may not be harmful or even noticeable. Furthermore, the function of systems can be even harder to decipher the more complex they become as the function of something can be more subjective. And this is especially the case in humans. It can be very hard to say what the function of the human as a whole is. Therefore, CAS needs to decide upon a function for all these systems, which is universal or normal and can therefore be inputted into his definition of health. So I believe CAS can be helped by the adaptive model of health. So this model defines health as the ability to adapt and self-manage when faced with environmental stressors. I believe this definition can be applied to Cassie's model when you can input it into the function aspect of his definition. So let me explain this combined model in a bit more detail using a clinical uh, example. So in this model, a human will be considered healthy if it can function well and a human functions well when it is able to adapt to its environment. An example of this would be the body regulating its blood pressure appropriately in relation to the body's current level of activity. So the disease we call hypertension is the objectively observable state of an organism being unable to do this. As such, an, as such, an organism with hypertension is unhealthy as it is unable to adapt and self-manage to its environment. This sort of way of looking at things could also be applied to the psychological and social domains of health. So it's all encompassing, which is what we want. The benefits of this model are is that it emphasises the importance of the patient's subjective experience as the human's ability to adapt and self-manage is partially judged by how they perceive they can adapt and self-manage. It also allows health to be viewed on a spectrum, with the most healthy being the most able to adapt and the least healthy being the least able to adapt, whilst also not claiming there is one correct way to adapt. It also allows us to understand why humans value health and have subsequently set up the profession of medicine to protect and improve it. Simply put, I argue that all humans want to pursue their own conception of the good, and I would argue that health is needed for individuals to pursue their own conception of the good, as without a decent ability to adapt and self-manage to their environment and the trials and tribulations of life, an individual would not be able to adequately pursue their own conception of the good. Hence, we need doctors to assist us with providing us with uh, better health so we can better pursue our conception of the good. I would therefore argue that health should simply be defined as the ability of the patient to adapt and manage to their environment in order to pursue their own conception of the good. So back to the problem at hand. Using this definition of health, a doctor heals the patient when he increases their ability to adapt to their environment. Emmanuel argues that there are six modifiable dimensions to the dying experience which could be shaped for the better. These being physical symptoms, psychological and cognitive symptoms, social relationships and support, economic demands of care, hope and expectations and existential beliefs. A doctor can improve the health of the patient in this situation by improving any one of these dimensions as doing so improves the patient's ability to cope and function whilst they are in the dying process. Moreover, positively shaping these domains also maintains the patient's dignity. However, I do not believe it would be appropriate, ethical or even practical for doctors to attempt to influence or 
in inverted commas, treat all these domains. And hence, it's not a doctor's duty to attempt to do so. Health, by my definition, is something which an individual can improve in many ways, such as intervention, such as interventions performed by the individual themselves, by the individual's family, by social institutions, by groups and other things like the healthcare system or education system. A doctor intervening in all these domains would mean they would be acting outside of his or her experience, outside his or her training and hence outside of his professional boundaries and acting in such a way may cause the patient unnecessary harm and therefore said actions would be unethical as they would not be in the patient's best interest. However, this does, mean, does not mean that the doctor does not have a passive role in facilitating the actions of others in modifying such dimensions. It's from analysing Emmanuel's model and identifying how doctors could positively shape these domains that I was able to pick out the core obligations that doctors owe a dying patient. I therefore believe a doctor is obliged to inform the patient that they have entered the dying process as early as possible, provide the patient with an honest and accurate impression of their prognosis um, and the effectiveness of any informations of any interventions, uh, provide the patient with treatment for physical and cognitive symptoms, provide the patient with information about or refer patients to services that are better in a better position to positively modify the domains of the dying experience. And lastly, ensure that the patient is respected and makes their own choices about attempts to modify the dying experience. And if this is not possible, make choices that the patient would likely choose. I would argue that such obligations, if carried out, would result in the patient's health being improved, the patient's dignity being preserved, and therefore the patient has the best chance to die well. Furthermore, all these actions would follow the doctor's ethical code that's enshrined in the four pillars plus scope approach. And as a result, we would have a system where doctors are working ethically, are helping their patients to die well, are improving their patient's health, and we wouldn't have this blockage of us talking about patient's death and it would just result in better care for everybody. Uh, so first of all Matt thank you very very much both for the talk there and also for joining me for a chat for our podcast. So first of all could you give us a quick elevator summary refresher of what your dissertation looked at and what you concluded? Uh, so Put it very sort of uh, quickly, if I can. The idea was that I don't believe the way end of life care is currently carried out in the NHS and probably the wider Western world is very good. Um, and I think the main reason for this is because doctors and patients are caught talking at cross purposes and there are blockages in the way uh, with societal taboos and other things. And as a result, we've got an unethical state of care when it comes to end of life care. I think one of the main reasons for this is our definitions of health are inadequate for the current state of medicine. So as a result, I came up with a different definition of health, which is the idea that health is the ability of an individual to adapt and self-manage their environment um, to pursue their own conception of the good. And I think when this is inputted in, um, you end up with a sort of better no, you can treat somebody at the end of their life, you can improve their health, and this removes a lot of the problems which are already there. Um, and then also during the course of the dissertation, I talked about why death probably isn't as scary as it's made out in uh, society and why it's probably not as harmful as people think it is. 
I think you hinted a little bit at this um, just then, but why did you decide on this topic? Why was this something that you wanted to research? So I really enjoyed in the dissertation the start of life care and the end of life care um, sort of modules. And I really enjoyed getting into the essays and the questions that were there. And at a similar time to this, I read a really good book, which I'd recommend anybody reading, which is called The Way We Die Now by Seamus Omani. And that book really chimed with what I'd seen on placement. And I'd seen specialists in death, sort of say, so people who are palliative care doctors or geriatricians or people on ICU, knowing what they were doing and really working with the patient to have a good death and had a really clear understanding and they didn't shy away from any conversations and this was really odds with other stuff i'd seen in medicine and this book also said yeah in a lot of medicine and in a lot of uh, the healthcare system the way we treat dying patients is not up to scratch and we'll, it's not a conversation we're having um so because i'd already enjoyed the topic and enjoyed doing bits like that and also because i thought there is a problem here that needs solving i thought it'd be a good thing to explore further and write the dissertation about. Brilliant. And I think you're quite right. These are really interesting and really massive questions as well with some real ramifications for people and patients. So you noted a few things in your elevator summary and, of course, uh, in your presentation about things that are possible impediments to moving forward on this issue and to discussing things like death and end of life care. So. Why then do you think society and indeed the medical profession have been so hesitant to move forward on this discussion and to basically re-examine how we consider death, particularly in the medical sphere? So I think the biggest impediment up to this point of why this has happened is medicine's success. So if we look at, so especially poignant currently, uh, with vaccines we're all searching for a vaccine um and it's quite scary to think that there might not be a vaccine for covid because this is the first disease that is has affected lots of people and has, has caused the deaths of quite a lot of people that we've not had a vaccine for and people of our generation don't remember polio people dying from polio a lot they don't remember people dying from measles um the life expectancy over the past sort of 40, 50 years has just rocketed up. And as such, you've got a lot of people dealing with chronic conditions, a lot of people, the dying process is a lot longer. And we are, death is something that's less sort of around us all the time. Whereas in the past, death was just a, a matter of life. It was something that happened to people. And it's something that people had to be very aware of and learn how to deal with because it happened a lot more. And it happened at the home. Hospitals weren't necessarily free. Um, and now what's happened is there's a shift to a lot of people dying in hospitals. A lot of people go into hospitals expecting something to be done, expecting doctors to treat them. And people are having more and more interventions. And I don't think we've ever sort of looked back at medicine success and gone, look, we've been really successful. But this is there is a hard limit on how long people can live for. And people are always going to die. And as such, it's almost like that's been cast aside and not really thought about. And we've sort of been enjoying the successes of medicine, but not thinking about we've kicked some issues down the curb, sort of say. 
Um, and I think it's there is sort of more people are talking about it. I think uh, doing my dissertation, there was it's been quite interesting that more people under the age of 25 have written wills in America than people between the age of 25 to 50. So I do think there is a change and people are starting to think about it a bit more, um, especially with sort of uh, conversations around assisted dying popping up a lot more. Um, so I think people are starting to talk about it, but especially when you look at uh, assisted dying and um, sort of there's two very strong camps and there's an awful lot of very strong things said I think it this is a topic that brings up a lot of emotion and as such it's either something that people don't want to talk about or they just have their opinion and they're like I'm right I don't really want to talk to anyone else about it because it's a really difficult thing to talk about and maybe have your mind changed on. Yeah I think that makes a lot of sense so do you think then this constant sort of view of the successes of medicine do you think that's more an issue in terms of how death is handled by the medical professionals or how it's sort of handled by society at large and laypersons i i think it's both um so with taking them separately when you look at the medical profession when i'm taught about um sort of conditions it's you, you learn what you need to spot the condition what you need to diagnose it, what you need to treat it. And it's like, well, what happened? What's the chances of this treatment working or how harsh is this treatment on the body? And is, is there, if someone's a lot younger and they have it, is it good to treat them? But if someone gets to a certain age, is it worth treating them because the treatment will outweigh the benefits? And it's something that we're not really taught. We're just taught, here's the problem go and fix it, go and find the problem in people and go and fix it. So it's not something that we're taught as medical students. And that probably is subconsciously there of a lot of doctors are problem solvers, a lot of like sort seen as almost like detectives. So finding a problem and solving it. So and a lot of doctors are very intelligent people. So when they come across a problem which they can't solve, it probably frustrates them. So all these things sort of patch together to mean that we're probably not very good at going. Yeah, it's in actual fact it'd probably be best for us to be a little bit more conservative and help this patient have a good death rather than just find that thing that's wrong with them or really try and fix that thing that's wrong with them. And then with society, I do think that it, it is something which you go to the doctors with an expectation that they can help you. And I think it's sometimes quite shocking when they, when they can't. And whenever there's a problem that medicine can't solve, there's, inevitably public campaigns going we will beat this like we will build out we will beat cancer or we will beat alzheimer's and a lot of money gets poured into it and yes we've in those areas we've made great strides but personally i still think there will there will always be cancer around the end stage cancer and saying we will beat this as if it's an enemy that you can somehow fight with like i said in my presentation some force of will or some ingenious medical treatment just probably is a bit disingenuous um, and I, I think it's both those things that sort of they feed each other there's a lot of cross-pollination between the two yeah I think that sounds right so let's talk about your concept of health so you take an approach that health involves the ability of an individual to adapt to their environment to pursue their conception of the good can you say a bit more about what that looks like especially in terms of what is meant by conception of the good in this context? Yeah, um, so when I was talking about 
his definition of health with people, a lot of people said it's a little bit woolly um, and a little bit broad. And I, they all said that they don't think that a lot of people have necessarily a conception of the good, uh, all of which I think are fair, fair criticisms of it. Um, but but conception of the good is quite a sort of philosophical phrase. It's maybe a bit jargony. Um, but when you think about when you are ill yourself, especially with something quite serious, I do think there is a part of you that's there like, I can't do what I want to do. And that's really frustrating because if illness, it, illness has negative connotations. And I think that's because of the way it impairs you from doing things. If illness didn't impair you from going about your normal daily life, then what would it actually be? Would it really be a bad thing or would it just be a state that a human was in from time to time? So you just go through states of these illnesses that it would be a curiosity because someone would be there like, oh, your blood pressure's low. But if it doesn't affect them at all, then it wouldn't be an issue and we wouldn't have a profession to change it. So I think the conception of the good is just your ability to pursue what you want to be doing. Um, and I think the ability of the individual to adapt to their environment you need to be able to do that in order to pursue what you want to be doing. And I really like this definition because it can work on all the different levels that we want a definition of health to work on. So it can work at the microscopic level, like I mentioned with blood pressure or any other disease. So if, you're, if your lungs are unable to adapt to when you're running, because let's say you have asthma, then that is an illness because you can't adapt to your environment because your lungs are not getting enough oxygen in because of inflammation, etc. And also, if I can't run because I've got asthma, then I can't do what I want to be doing, which is like playing a sport or something like that. So it works on all the levels from really quite microscopic all the way up to the whole human, which is what we want it to do. It also can cover chronic diseases because you can have somebody who's, let's say, well, chronic diseases like arthritis or somebody who's lost a leg, let's say, who can be very well adapted to their environment and to the point where you have a conversation with them they're like it's just part of me i don't feel like i've got an illness i think i'm relatively healthy and when you look at the questionnaire scores for their health they score really highly because they've learned how to adapt with it so i'd say that person's healthy although they have an objectively biological misfunctioning let's say so i think my definition helps really encompass people with disabilities, people with chronic conditions. It works on a scale and also it puts patients on a spectrum. So you're not saying this is person is unhealthy and this person is not healthy. It's just this person is less healthy than they could be. And it's a doctor's job to make them more healthy. Um, and as such, I don't think you, you necessarily exclude conditions that have previously been excluded in models of health. So it's, I think it's a really useful definition because of how it encompasses a lot of things and it sort of changes the way that a doctor might view health and might change the way they view their role, which, as we see later on in the dissertation, that can really help in certain situations. Yeah, I think you're quite right in that it allows you to encompass all these different areas, but it's still quite holistic and it gives value, I think, as well to the perception of the person whom we may or may not consider to be poorly. Um, so some philosophers, for instance, write on the notion of infertility and whether that could be an illness. Um, and maybe it's 
an illness for the person that wants to go and have a family, but is not necessarily an illness for an infertile person who genuinely doesn't want to have children. And, and also, it's, I, I also think that it's very good is it, is it doesn't make someone who is unhealthy an inherently bad thing, because words like disease and unhealthy have such negative connotations with them. And I think this, because it's this spectrum, it's there like, no, you're just a little bit further down the spectrum and we're going to help push you up the spectrum. Um, so I think it can work, like you say, for things like infertility. It can also probably be applied to things like gender dysphoria. So without saying, because a big debate around sort of gender dysphoria is like, is it a disease? Should doctors be getting involved? Is it just the way people are? And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter. What we have is somebody who's not coping with the situation that they're currently in and doctors can do something to make them cope with their situation better. So it doesn't matter if gender dysphoria is a disease. There is something that I as a medical professional can do to help this person. And as a result, they will be more healthy at the end of it. So there's a lot of problems in medicine. I think we're being failed by the definitions that we've had for such a long time that just aren't fit for purpose because there are so many things that doctors can do and are expected to do. And I think there's been quite a while now we've had sort of square pegs in round holes. Brilliant. So are we going to move just slightly from health back to death? Um, <laughs> so you spoke about the notion of death being a neutral concept. Um, why was this important to discuss? What ramifications does it have for the discussion at the end of life care? So, for instance, do we need to have the notion of death as neutral to move forward in this discussion? Or could we have the movement in the discussion? So, yeah, do we need to have the notion of death as neutral to move forward with this discussion? Or could we have the discussion move forward even if we still consider death to be a harm? So the, the reason why I originally brought death in my dissertation is because at the time when I was writing it, it's one of those things that um, the way when you write certain bits of your dissertation first, you'll go down paths that you might not have gone down if you'd written other bits first. So at the time, I was reading an awful lot about around the medical concepts, so a lot of literature that there's, that's there for doctors about the idea of a good death. And that to me just felt a bit odd because how can death be good necessarily? So as such, I wanted to really explore like what death is. And I think it's important to this debate because if death is this all terrifying, horrible thing that no one would ever want to have, and it's just the biggest harm anyone can suffer, then it does frankly doesn't matter how well you die, that you you or how well your dying process is. Death is just the ultimate bad thing. So it makes sense for doctors to just intubate everybody and be as aggressive as possible because death is that worst thing. So, but when I explored it, so it, I thought it was important to really look into is death really as bad as we can make it out as it is? And I think, I, I, I think I've came to the conclusion that life is on the whole, there's, there's you could probably argue that there are people where life is not a positive experience, but on the whole, life is a positive experience. So it makes absolute sense that people want to live for as long as possible. But that doesn't mean that death's a bad thing. It's just death is neutral. It's one of those things that's below that. So, but it's, I wouldn't say it's actively bad. 
Um, now, I think I could, if somebody did believe that death was bad, that doesn't necessarily, it's not terminal for this dissertation. I think it's just necessary to say that, that being dead is not necessarily worse than having a bad death. So having a bad dying process. Um, because that way you can say, yeah, we'll, we'll give someone a good, uh, we'll help someone die well. And yes, death will be bad, but it's not as bad as someone having a really awful end of their life. So I think you can move forward, even if you consider death a harm. I just think it's important that people really think about where that harm is and how bad it is. Because for me, I think it's odd to someone can be harmed when that person doesn't exist. Um, and that's why I came to the conclusion that death is a neutral state because there's no one there to really experience it. Yeah, that sounds right, especially the notion of even if death is bad and a harm, there's still a lot to be said about the sort of the process of dying. And even if, you know, something is going to be a bad thing when you get there, then surely it makes sense to give patients the best possible sort of last few weeks and what have yeah. you. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, and I think, I think the only, if you have someone of a utilitarian persuasion, I think it'd be hard for them to say, I think it'd be hard, I'd be, struggle to have a conversation with them on those grounds because if they do view death as a slight harm, that death's going to go on forever. So that will always, it, it will eventually tick up to the point that it will overcome everything. Um, so I think it, it, it's really important for somebody who does think that death is a harm to really try. I think it's a useful exercise for that person to try and quantify how much that harm is and who it's harming, because I did that and I just came to the conclusion that I don't think it is a harm. And I think that's something that may be useful for other people to do. Brilliant. So in your dissertation and in your presentation, you spoke about the four pillars and you did take a bit of a focus on the four pillars. Um, and so I was wondering why you decided to take that four pillars approach to looking at end of life care. Yeah, I know that a lot of people who may be listening to this who are not necessarily medically trained, who are philosophers by trade, will probably be rolling their eyes at the four pillars plus scope approach, um, because it is one of those things that's a little bit woolly. Um, a lot of the pillars can sort of be in competition with one another. So you, by improving one, you can fail another. Um, and it's unclear to, to see where the sort of grounding of the read for these things come from. A lot of it is quite more intuitive than anything sort of meta-ethical. But the reason I use the approach is because I wanted to show that the current state of affairs is bad. And I think you could show that it's bad using a variety of different ways. You could probably do it using a utilitarian calculus or maybe you could use the ontology to show why it's bad. But I think for the purpose of this dissertation, it is aimed at trying to change medical professionals' opinion um, and people in society's opinion. And the four pillars plus scope approach is something that they themselves use to see if their actions are ethical. It's something they're taught. It's something that's very familiar with them. So it's very useful to go, well, I'm using your checklist to critique you. So you're not even standing up to your own standards, never mind the standards that some of us philosophers can come up with. So I think it's useful in that sense. 
Um, and also a lot of the things in it, sort of autonomy, uh, beneficence, are things that the general public can get on board with as well. They generally think that you shouldn't do something if it's going to cause more harm than it should do. They don't think you should take away people's sort of choice. So it's, again, you can sort of go to society and go, these are things that are recognisable that you, you think are good, and current care is not fulfilling these things. So I think it was a useful tool to critique the current state of healthcare and then look at what my changes could do, um, and whilst also being accessible and relevant to the field which is being sort of used in. Brilliant. Um, so you very convincingly argue for the position that doctors have five key obligations to the dying patients. So just by quick um, reminder, so first to inform the patient they have entered the dying process as early as possible, provide the patient with an honest and accurate impression of the prognosis of their illness and the effectiveness of any interventions, provide the patient with treatment for physical and cognitive symptoms, provide patients with information about or refer patients to services that are in better positions to positively modify the domains of the dying experience and to ensure that the patient is respected and makes their own choices about attempts to modify the dying pro sorry, the dying experience. And if this isn't possible, make choices that the patient would likely choose. So are there any of these that are of particular importance and that you would really like to stress the importance of? Um, I think they're all important. But then again, I probably would say that as the person that wrote them. But I think there are certain things which doctors already do quite well. Um, so number three, provide patients with treatment for physical and cognitive symptoms. Doctors are doing that all the time. Maybe there could be more help with doctors could know how to give better pain relief uh, when it comes to end of life care or just be aware of other non-medical ways of help easing someone's cognitive symptoms, things like that. But I think doctors are really quite good at that already. Um, and again, doctors are really quite good at referring patients when they think the patient needs those services. Um, but again, maybe you could broaden out the sort of things that you could be referring them to. So again, certain psychological practitioners. Also, doctors just referring to like, sometimes someone who could give spiritual guidance is in a better position to help you. And that's probably something doctors don't often think about. Most hospitals have a chapel, have a chaplain, have someone like that. Maybe that could be helpful. But again, doctors are already quite good at that. And I think doctors are usually really quite good at respecting the patient's choices when they make those choices. Um, so I think the first two are probably the most important because the patient needs to know that they have entered the dying process as early as possible. And the patient needs to have an, an accurate or at least honest impression of their prognosis and illness and an honest assessment of any interventions in order to make their own choices. Um, so I think often in medicine, there can be this illusion that the doctor is giving the patient the choice. Um, because, because especially in certain surgical specialties, the surgeon will just go, well, you need surgery. And this is I'm very confident that this will work. And often they will be very confident that it will work and it'll be a, a great success. But you haven't given them the choice of it's been framed in such a way that the patient will inevitably choose one choice. Um, and I think sometimes that's helpful because there is really only one choice. If the patient wants to live, 
because patients can sometimes struggle with tying up what they want with their understanding of the medical field. So that's our job to help guide them through what choices are appropriate there. But I think when things become more complicated, so in, in palliative care, we the right option is not necessarily as, as clear, crystal clear as something like surgery. And as such, us as doctors really need to make sure that we're actually giving patients a choice. We're not leading them down one path or another. And as such, I think that's why the first two points are probably the most important, because I think one of the most galling things about the current state of, of end of life care is when patients do make, have these conversations, their wishes are respected. They live better lives and sometimes they live longer. And the fact that this, the patient cho- have, do not, do not know this and so don't make that choice. That, uh, that for me, I think is a bit sad. And so that's why I think the first two are probably the most important, mainly because they're the ones we probably do the least well currently. So there are, of course, terrific takeaways in your conclusions for healthcare professionals, and we've literally just chatted about <laughs> uh, some of those. Uh, but I was wondering if there was any lessons in your conclusions that non-healthcare professionals could take away from your research. Um, yeah, I I think there's. So we've already talked a little bit about sort of the conclusions for healthcare professionals, and there is a couple more that will sort of tie in with what non-healthcare professionals could sort of uh, take away as well. And it's for me. It's important that in medicine we don't have sort of specialists in death. So people that sort of are doctors who will go to the dying patients and will do all this, but ordinary doctors won't. I think it's something that if everybody does a little bit of it, it will improve things a lot more than having a specialist in it. Um, and this is a, can be applied to society and non-medical professionals as well. So I think it should be normal that when you get to the age of 40 or 50, that you have conversations with your general practitioner about what might happen when you get a bit older, what might happen when you get a bit demented and what might happen um, if you have a really serious infection or if you have repeated falls and stuff like that. It should just be something that you've had that you've had chance to think about because often it gets to a point where when you're having these conversations, some stuff is already happening and it can be a little bit, maybe a little bit too close and you can feel rushed into decision making. You can feel like everything gets a bit too much. So I want people to be having conversations about as, as we have conversations about politics and about how best to live life. I think we should be having our final sort of days and what we want. And that would just strip away the to do and strip away any issues of us having these conversations so when it does come to making these decisions we've already thought about it and we already have a vague idea what we want we're already a little bit informed and it just makes the whole process a little bit less overwhelming and a little bit easier and also maybe some socrates on death is neutral and not so much harm yeah exactly i i um and i think it if you i i don't think you can ph- philosophize yourself into not being scared of death necessarily i i think it's more of a personal thing that will differ from individuals but i do think there's 
it's almost like the he who must not be named in Harry Potter. Like everyone is so scared because they don't talk about it. And as such, they don't really understand what it is. They don't really understand. And as such, it gets this sort of power over you that I just when you really strip it back and when you really think about it, this is something that's going to happen to all of us. And in all of the things which happen to all of us, so giving birth, etc., there is so much concept goes on about how best to give birth or how best to raise a child or what's best with education. Why are we doing this with the latter stages of our lives when it is something that we can have a conversation about? And if we do have a conversation about it, the evidence shows that people have quite good quality of life and die, as far as we can say, reasonably well. So. So, final um, final question. Are there further questions raised by your conclusions that would warrant further investigation or research? I, I think a really interesting part of this dissertation that could be taken further is you could further flesh out the idea of a concept of health and see how it could be flawed to uh, refer to other areas that aren't necessarily uh, end of life. So I've already mentioned how it could be applied to um sort of like um, people with gender dysphoria. Uh, Also, how could it be applied to places like psychiatry and even applied to things that aren't necessarily medical, like abortion? Uh, Because I think there are ways that this could be applied. So, for instance, abortion may be a way of improving the mother's health. And it'd be an interesting way to see if this could be applied elsewhere. Um, I also think that it would be interesting to further explore sort of death. Is it a harm? How might death be a harm? Um, Because it's not something that I talked about. uh, I talked about a reasonable length, but I don't think I've exhausted it. Um, So I think that's something that could be interesting to talk about further. Um, And also, I think just sort of, I I haven't talked a lot about it in the talk because for sake of time, but I think there are certain obligations that doctors have because of the nature of their profession, which I talk about a lot more length in the dissertation. I think that's a really interesting thing that we should be focusing on of what is the profession of medicine for and what is our goal and why have we been set up? Because I think a lot of things have happened very quickly in medicine. and We've been given an awful lot of responsibilities, especially in things like psychiatric care and abortion, which we probably weren't completely equipped to deal with. We're just sort of you have these skills, please use them. And I think we consider well, what are doctors meant to be doing? What are healthcare systems meant to be doing? And that's a really interesting area that I'd like to explore further of what is the goal of medicine um, and how can that be applied sort of in our practice? Fantastic. Anything more that you'd like to add before we finish up? No, no. We've talked about pretty much everything that there is to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, no, really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for talking to us about your research and for having this chat. No worries. Thanks very much. The Idea Pod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage. 